to the word this morning. Let me pray for us, ask God to, uh, to bless this time. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that uh, you've spoken to us. We've already confessed that our hearts and our lives become diluted by other things and lesser things that's easy to focus on. If it wasn't for your grace, if it wasn't for this good word that comes to remind us in your spirit that operates inside us and our community of people that sharpen us on the outside, we would be hopeless because we would be sure to give in to all of these whims, all these things that we would desire to run after. And so this morning I ask as we look at your word that you would use it to penetrate our hearts, to speak to us, to reveal to us the things that we need to hear, to encourage us in the ways that we need, the things we need to do, the things that we've neglected that we would give attention to, that you would continue to form us into your people, your temple, that will represent you in your presence among us and in the midst of this world. And so we pray that you would do that this morning as we look at your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, you can open your Bibles to the book of Haggai. The book of Haggai, and you're going, where is this? This is a joke. Uh, no, it's a, it's a real book. It's not like the book of hesitations, you know. It's a real book. You'll find it. If you go to Matthew, you go three books back. You'll go Malachi, Zechariah, and you'll find your way to Haggai. You might miss it, though. It's only two chapters. It's a, a short little 38-verse message that we're going to be looking at this week and the next two weeks. Uh, I'll be preaching, speaking, teaching from this particular passage this section in, in the God's Word in the Old Testament. As you find your way there, it's uh, uh, just a little background. This, this book, these and Zechariah and Malachi both are written to the period of time to Israel after the exile. If you remember, they'd spent the 70 years in exile in Babylon. And then there was a, a return back to Jerusalem to, to reoccupy the land by really a miraculous kind of work of God to allow them to go back and to rebuild the temple. And they've returned. They've been there for a few years. And this word comes to them after some 17 years of being in the land that God comes and, and speaks to them about some things that are being neglected. And so he's speaking in this time period, probably around 520, to give you kind of a, a time stamp exactly on when this is in, uh, in history. I'm going to read through this, and you'll see we're going to read the first chapter today. We're going to really take up the first first chunk of, of chapter one. The next couple of weeks, we'll look at the uh, next week, the last half of one, first part of two, and then the third week, the, uh, the last half of chapter two. So let me read through chapter one for us. Haggai chapter one. In the second year of Darius, the king in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins. While each of you busies himself 
with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and in the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of their, the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came, and they worked in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius, the king. I've already given just a little bit of background of the time period of this. And just to go back a little bit further, if you know a little bit of the history of Israel, you know that the, the northern kingdom was destroyed around 721 by Assyria. And then Bill at different points has hit on uh, the understanding of what took place in the judgment. He went through a back at, we hit, and Ezekiel touched through and approached the, the judgment that came to the southern kingdom of Judah as they were exiled. It was a promise that they would be judged because of their rebellion, because of their sin that they were exiled into Babylon sometime around the end of the 600. 586 is the exact date when the, uh, when the temple was destroyed and when, uh, when the city was destroyed by Babylon. And so the, the people, Judah, the nation, has been exiled in, in Babylon for some 70 years. And as was promised, as was prophesied, there would be a return, that they would be able to return. And, of course, in somewhere around 539, a new kind of leader came on the scene um, Cyrus, who was uh, the leader of Persia, kind of a friendly takeover of Babylon at the time, came in, had some different policies in place. And so a part of what he would do, instead of exile, of taking them from their, their homelands, his policies his, uh, was to return them. He wanted to return them to the place. And so Israel was returned to and to reoccupy the land that they've been taken out of. And so a part of what they were to do was to return and rebuild the city. Of course, they were still under Persian rule, but they were to rebuild the temple as well. And so you can read that. If you read the first half of Ezra, you'll find the historical account of that first wave of the remnant that returned, the exiles that returned to Jerusalem under the leader Zerubbabel. And we see his name, and it's a great name, isn't it? Zerubbabel, kind of fun to say. Uh, that he and, and Joshua lead the way back to, to rebuild the city. And so that is... That, that's seen in, in Ezra, and you can, you can read that, and you find that they began to rebuild the temple, they laid a foundation, they built the altar, but then it seems that work had stopped at that point in time, and so we have about 17 years that had passed. And so if you imagine the, the returnees, these exiles that returned, they're coming back and they have great anticipation for what's going to happen. An amazing thing has taken place that, that Cyrus, this new leader, has come in and said, I want you to return. I want you to rebuild your city. I want you to rebuild your temple and reestablish worship to your God. How amazing is that fact? So they return with all these images in their mind of, of what was taking place here, a, a renewed understanding of the perhaps this throne of David would be reoccupied and the monarchy would be reestablished in some way. Perhaps the glory would be returned to the temple at this point in time. Maybe they would return in all the images from the prophets of abundance 
would, would be seen and they would experience a prosperity that would be promised to them in the returning period of time. So they returned with great images of their mind of what God was doing. This great God who had promised to return, they're returning. But what do they show up to? They show up to nothing but desolation. A city that had been destroyed some 60, 50 years earlier, and they find themselves in a place with much fewer people than they anticipated, with, with a task that was much larger than they could ever imagined, and a temple that had been destroyed with lots of work to be done. But they did get to work. They began, they laid the foundations, they built the altar. But it seems at that point in time, around 537, as they started the process, that their, their focus began to shift. And naturally, right, you have a city that's been destroyed. What do you have to do? You have to rebuild it. You have to put in place the infrastructure. You have to have places to live. And so they begin to, to build their houses and, I suppose, put in the streets and put in the whole infrastructure that would be necessary to sustain living in this period of time. And that would make sense. And it seems to make sense to God as well because for 17 years he has allowed them to do just that to build their homes, to establish their lives there, to put in place the infrastructure economically and for their particular place to be able to, to live and to stay there. But the problem was that they had be, their focus had been lost, that over the course of that 17 years of rebuilding, that, that the, the state of the temple had been somehow neglected and they, they began to not see it properly. And so they began to become preoccupied. And so the, the central message of this text, the message to them... It's a powerful message to them as well as to us. It's a message of what is it that preoccupies us? What is it that takes our attention from the most important things in our lives? Good things might always draw our attention away from the most important things. And that's what this message is about. And so God says something needs to be said. And he sends his messenger, Haggai, to speak to them after 17 years of living in this setting. Started the process of rebuilding the temple. It stopped. And we're focused now on other things. And as we look at this, we're going to ask this question. What is central? What is spiritually central in their lives? What is the central aspect of their lives? What preoccupies their thinking from the moment they get up to the moment they go to bed at nighttime? What is their focus? And what should be their focus? And as we look at what the challenge is to them, it will be a challenge as well to us. There is a sense in which they had become blind to the very reality that had brought them back to the city. The very thing that had brought them back to focus had been lost in the midst of that. And we're going to look at the situation they're in. We're going to look at the issues that are being addressed. What's wrong? Why is God's messenger coming? And what's his indictment against them? If he is the prosecuting attorney for them, what is he saying to them? What's the charges against them? And then finally, we will look at the call to them and then the response, which this is one of those responses that's just beautiful to see of reading other prophets, you find that there's lots and lots of messages and no response. In this one, we have one that's quick and, and res- a good response. So what's the situation that they find themselves in? First of all, we got the timing, time period around 520 for us to put it on our calendar. It's around the end of August, around August 29th, most of the folks say. It's somewhere in that period of time. It was the first day of their month. It was probably a festival that they were gathered. And so Haggai shows up at this festival with a message both for the leaders, Joshua and Zerubbabel, as well as a message for the people. So he shows up and he has a message for them, and it revolves around the state of the temple. Now, for us, it's important for us to understand what exactly was their understanding, what's the Old Testament understanding of the temple. Now, we could spend a lot of time on that, but in a very short order, what we understand the temple to be was to be, as we look back on that, and if you can read through the history, you find that, You know, there's lots of instructions about building the tabernacle. 
and then the building of the tabernacle. There's instructions on the building of the temple and the building of the temple and focus on the temple and the destruction of the temple. So it was a very central aspect to their lives and to their faith in Israel. And so they were, the temple was central to them. But what was it exactly? The importance to them it was that it was a, a visible sign. It was a tangible sign, a tangible symbol for them of the presence of their God who had rescued them. And so he would dwell there and they would know by the presence of the temple that God was with them. Certainly by the rituals that would take place in and out of it, that it was a picture. It was like a parable. It, it demonstrated God's presence to them and to a world outside them. They would recognize there is a God in Israel and we understand that because there's a temple, there's a place that he dwells. And that would make sense to them. And that would make sense to everyone else around them. So the, the lack to the attention that's given to the temple or the lack thereof is a reflection of their spiritual condition. So the attention given or the lack thereof is a reflection of their spiritual condition. And so that tells us something about what's taking place here as we look at the condition of the temple. So as they, if we find it in neglect and in ruin, it tells us something about where they are. The other thing we need to know, and the text gives this pretty clearly, the opening verses, these words from Haggai, from the Lord, he wants to draw a picture for them. And the, and the, and the message goes something like this. I want you to look at the condition of the temple. I want you to look, use your eyes and see what's its condition. And you find that throughout this text, it's in ruin. It's desolate. It looks awful. The, the, the stones have begun to crumble. Even what was established is beginning to fall apart. It's grown up, and the altar itself seems to be um, in ruin. And so that's what's taking place. And he says, look at that. These 17 years, nothing has been done to restore that. And then he says, look at your houses. These returned people, you came with an anticipation of what would take place. You came with an anticipation of reestablishing the presence of God here only to be preoccupied with your own houses. And the language of the text says that you live in your paneled houses. That we understand that their houses were established, that they were furnished, they were nicely done, they were completed and had taken their own intention. So much so that it, they had focused on their houses to the very neglect of the temple. So much so that they couldn't even see the need or feel even a tinge of remorse when they would look at the two. It was such a huge task, and they were so preoccupied with this that they couldn't even imagine that something would need to be done or that they would be the ones that would do that. And so that's the situation that they're living in. That's a situation that Haggai is sent to them to give them a picture that's right in front of them that they can't see. Their eyes should tell them something, but they don't because their eyes are focused on the wrong thing. So what are the issues? The issues are their priorities. The issues are the things that they're seeking to be satisfied with, and the issues are faith. First, their priorities. Their self-centered priorities had prevented them from seeing what was most important. The first few verses of this text really set the tone of the whole of the book, and we see that there's an interchange in 2 through 4 of two key words, time and house. Time and house. Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? And you see the time. Is it time to say, no, it's not time yet to rebuild, but it is time to live and to focus on my own place, my own place where I live and to, to give attention to that. Is it time to look at your own house and to see it as being furnished and nicely done 
And yet it's not time to do anything about the ruined state of God's temple, the ruined state of his temple, which represents his presence, which demonstrates to you and to the world around you the God that is in in front of you and the God that you serve. How should this affect you? How should you, looking at these two images, what it should provoke in your mind? It should bring about a kind of problem in your mind. It It should bring some sort of inconsistency in your mind as you look at these two. Now, it's important to to know that two things. One, their houses probably weren't extravagant. We're not talking about huge mansions or extravagant homes. We're just talking about completed homes that they'd put a lot of time and attention and money and energy into building and maintaining and growing, okay, and furnishing. And so they'd put time into them. And so it's not about extravagance homes. It's just homes that they had finished and they had completed, but so much so that it had become their focus, the constant maintaining of it. The other thing is there's no indictment in these words about houses. Houses are important. We need houses to live in. He doesn't indict the issue that they have houses. The point is primarily the preoccupation that their houses, that their places of residence took and how it neglected them from seeing the most important thing in their midst, that that had become the focus for them. And you see in verse 9, if you drop down, the Lord says, Why have I blown on, on all of these things and made them unsatisfactory to you? He says, Because of my house that's in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. And the picture there is this ongoing process, never ending. Maybe thinking, oh, I'll get done and then I'll move on, then I'll do something else. No, just an ongoing process. And any of you that know, that own property or any kind of material possessions, know what that feels like to think i will be done and then this but no there's always something else and that seemed to be the same cycle that they found themselves in and so god doesn't criticize their homes he doesn't criticize even the nature of it he just says he criticizes the fact that they had become so preoccupied and zealous for their own houses to the neglect of god's house to the neglect of his presence that was there and so for us There's a picture that we need to have in our minds. 17 years they'd been in the land. 17 years they'd been rebuilding the city and rebuilding their homes. And they had walked by the temple. Yeah, foundations were laid. There was an altar that was there. But they'd walked by year after year only to find their hearts as they would see that to become insignificant in their minds. Only to become focused on something else. They came with great anticipation of what they would do and how the temple would again reestablish and reconstitute them as a people of God and that God's presence would be there and their identity and their security and their priorities and their satisfaction would be all tied around that. But instead, over the course of time, they were drawn away from that being the focus, between that place as an identifying factor for them, they were drawn away to other things. They were drawn away to their own places, their own houses. They were focused on those things to the degree to which God's house hardly seemed necessary. And to think about his presence made known in that temple became much less important to them in reference to their own places. And so their priorities, little by little, became oriented around other things besides the presence of God. And I think if you asked them, you said, are you a follower of Yahweh? Are you a follower of this covenant of God? They said, yes, of course. But if you looked at their lives, you would find this inconsistency in it. But they didn't see it. And so their priorities for their own houses kept them from seeing the most important priority, build their own houses. And it tells us something, right, about priorities. Sometimes we can be blind to those things that we're most committed to and miss out of the things that are most important to us and important to God. 
You see, our priorities are passive. They're not active. They become a kind of lens for us as we look at the world and we evaluate what good and better and best is. Priorities become a lens that we look at the world and we say, what do I do and what don't I do? What do I spend on what? What do I do with my time? What don't I do with my time? And so our priorities enable us and cause us to make decisions about what we do with what God has given to us. They enable us to interpret the world around us and make decisions. So we don't just have priorities. We use them. We see through them. And we make decisions based upon the priorities. So if we don't know what our priorities are, if we don't realize that, we will be, they will be acting upon, upon us and we don't even realize it. And for them, this is what was taking place. Their priority of the ongoing enhancement and expansion of their own houses presented to them and caused them, prevented them from seeing the most important fact that was right in front of them. It prevented them from interpreting the most important truth that was in front of them, that was God's house was in ruins. At the same time, their houses were well done and they were on an ongoing process there. They had neglected God's house and they missed that fact. They couldn't, they saw it with their eyes, but it meant nothing to them. And so, in fact, their commitment to their own homes, their own lifestyle and maintaining their lifestyle actually reinforced itself. And it actually reinforced itself so much so when they would look at the temple, they would see the work and the cost and the labor and the money that would be involved in, in rebuilding that. And they looked at their lives and said, no, I need to maintain this. Therefore, that's impossible. Therefore, that needs to be put off to another day. And of course, day in and day out, month after month, they would think that way because they were called in their own lives. They were reinforcing the very thing that was most important to them. So they couldn't even see as God saw. All they saw was through their own lenses. And so God's good gifts became a kind of a monopolizing power in their lives. And it began to reinforce their position and prevented them from seeing the most important thing. Their priorities act upon them, and they didn't even realize the degree to which the effect that they had. Second issue that was raised here, one is priorities. The second one has to do with their satisfaction, what they're going, what they're looking to to find life. Uh, Verses 5 and 6, we see this that's carried out. It's something that God is doing to them in and through their things. Now, in verse 5, Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much, harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so so to put them into bags with holes. What's happening there? It's not just scarcity. There is scarcity. And there's maybe a lack of quantity. But more than just a lack of quantity, there's a lack of quality. They have sown much, but they've harvested little. They've eaten, but they haven't had enough. They drink, but they're not satisfied. They clothe, but their clothes aren't sufficient. They earn wages, but somehow, because of whatever economic conditions were taking place, their money wasn't sufficient to meet their needs. And so this is a result of what God was doing to them. It's reminiscent of language of the Old Testament of a a covenant curse. That God says, if you're not going to follow me, if you're not going to keep the first things first in your life, then I'm going to bring upon you a kind of judgment so that you will not enjoy the very good things that you have so that maybe it will remind you of the most important thing in your life. And so there's images here, and you can go to Deuteronomy 28 and Micah chapter 6 and many others that describe this kind of dissatisfaction that accompanies those who try to find life outside of the covenant, outside of faithfulness to God. And so it's not about scarcity here, but it's less about, it's more about them being satisfied. Somehow their expectations on their things were not being met. 
and they found themselves constantly disappointed with the things that they had, discontent with the things that they had. Their houses, their food, their drink, their clothing, their earnings were not sufficient. And we see a picture here of what God's doing. He says, I will not allow you to be satisfied with these things if they are the end. If you've neglected me in my presence, then these things that you do have, I'm going to diminish them. And he did bring drought. But the drought, there was still enough there. But what you have won't be sufficient. And the issue here is that they were seeking their satisfaction outside of their relationship with God. And God will never allow us to be satisfied with anything that's a replacement of him. He's going to do one of two things. He'll either stand in the way, he'll block our way to that thing. As he says in Hosea chapter 2, he blocks the way of Israel so that she can't get to her lovers. Or he will cause the thing that we have to be unsatisfactory, to be very disappointing to us. To remind us that there's something more than just the thing itself. You fill in the blank of what that thing might be. God says in verse 9, what did he do in these things? I blew them away. I blew it away. When God breathes on it, he just takes the life out of it in this case. He says, I'm not going to allow you to have any life. Enjoy this thing, this gift that I've given to you. I'm going to to take the life from you. The preacher in Ecclesiastes chapter 6 describes God as the one who gives wealth, at the same time gives the enjoyment of wealth. He doesn't just give the thing, he gives the, the, the ability to enjoy the thing itself and recognizes that. I have an image in my mind about, uh, well, a long time ago. I was 21 years old. And um, I had uh, I'd lost my girlfriend, who is now my wife, and I went and bought a new car. And I bought a nice new car. I loved it. It was a beautiful car, red car, moonroof. Uh, my wife's looking at me. She knows that car. Didn't replace her, of course. But I, I remember getting it and thinking, yeah, you know, if you can imagine a 20-year-old kid going, yeah, this, this is it. I was a Christian, mind you. I I was trying, I was following God as best I could anyway. But this car, this was nice. And I'm driving around the car. And I have a memory that's etched in my mind. When I was driving around one evening in my brand new car. And I pull up to the intersection of La Harpe and Baltimore in Kirksville, Missouri in my brand new car. And I remember this thought. And it was as real today as it was. And I remember going, and, and, a, and a thought crossed my mind. In fact, I can't say exactly from the pulpit what I thought in my head. But it reflected what that car really could do to me. I went, this is just a piece of metal. This is a nice car, and yet somehow <laughs> it's just a car. And I think back on that moment, I'm so thankful that God in his grace would, in that one moment, would say, remember, it's just a car. It's a nice car, and it's a nice car, and all these kinds of things. Yes, it'll get you from point A to point B, but it is just a car. It is just a thing. Do not miss where life is found in the very presence of God. And these people had said, have nice houses, and my goal is to maintain my nice house and my standard of living. And I'll find life there. And God says, no, you will not find life. And I'm going to see it, see to it that you do not find your life there. And so he steps in the way. He says, you will not be satisfied. There was a physical drought. And he, the physical drought was to match and to mimic the spiritual drought in their lives. Their lives would reflect the shape of the temple. Their lives would be desolate even though they tried to build them up because they had missed the most important things and neglected it in their lives. The priorities were off. 
They were seeking satisfaction in the wrong places, and their lives were faithless. Simply, their lives required no faith. Going after things for yourself, I don't have to trust God. In fact, I trust him for the very wrong things. Instead of to put me in positions where I have to trust him and see what he will do, I trust to get the things that I want that will, I think will, will make my life somehow worth living. And so faith will be always connected with obedience to God. And as we read through over the next couple of weeks, we'll see that faith that brings about a kind of obedience that would stretch them outside of their comfort zone, that would cause them to put a risk, even the houses they built, that would cause them to step out and labor and sacrifice and spend money that they didn't intend to because they trusted that God would use that in the building of his temple to reveal and bring about his presence. So faith is a huge issue in their lives where faithless, faithless lives look like complacency and apathy. And just let me just kind of maintain my lives. And, and so God said, no, I'm not going to allow you to live like this. Your priorities are wrong. You're set. You're looking to the wrong things to be satisfied and, and won't allow you to live faithless lives. And so Haggai shows up and he gives them a message. He tells them, gives them the indictment, the charges from their God, the way they've offended him. And he calls them to consider their ways. Think about your lives, he says. Consider what's happening. Consider the dissatisfaction you have. Consider that your houses aren't bringing the joy that you thought. And consider the fact that God's temple, his house, is in ruins. What are you really after? What do you really want? What, at the core of your being, do you really love? And so God graciously caused everything they had to be insufficient and dissatisfactory to them so that they would come to that conclusion. And then he calls them to go. So consider your lives. And he says, go. Go and build. Establish a place, this presence for me. Go get wood and build. As they reflected on their lives, there was action that came as a result of it. As it reflected what God had done in this reality of, of their houses and God's house, and they heard the command, they went. And, they, and God says, go so that I may be pleased. Go that I would be pleased. And what is it that God's pleased with? He says in verse 8, he says that I might take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. What's the it there? What is it that God is pleased with? Is it they went and they built a temple? Is it the, the, the stones and the timber that they raised, that they, they brought? Was it that? I don't think so. The language there reminds us of the sacrifices in the Old Testament, that God would take pleasure in the sacrifices, not because he delighted in an animal that was killed or that in grain or whatever kind of offering he delighted in the heart of the worshiper that would bring that kind of sacrifice so god's pleasure comes in their demonstration of their commitment to him he's less interested in physical reconstruction of the temple and he's more interested in the spiritual reconstruction of their lives but you see the both are connected the two are connected their spiritual reconstruction would be seen as they got to work building the temple the two were connected and as they did that, as they stepped out in faith, they would be obedient to him. Their priorities would be changed and they would prove that life was found not in their things, but in trusting and being obedient to God. And so what happens in this spiritual reconstruction is there's a kind of a demolition in their own lives, that their own lives were being demolished and making a place in their lives for the central presence of God in them because what had happened is they built their own houses they had pushed out a place for him and God says I will not stand for this he demolished their lives through their obedience and he says I'm going to build a place so that we'll see it physically 
but spiritually as well, there'll be my place for dwelling in you. So reflection brings action, which brings a spiritual reconstruction in our lives. Let me conclude with this. I got some application for us that's important. And I hope as I've worked through this, this week has been one of those weeks. I've Working through this text, I've found myself around every corner. So we think about priorities in my own life. So I think about satisfaction. I think about my own faith and desire to live faithless. I find that this is a message for me. And I'm surprised, although I should not be surprised, that a message written some 2,500 years ago would be so appropriate for at least one person today, living today. As we think about our world, we think about our preoccupation with our things, the opportunity to have nice things that we have, the focus on those things, the maintenance of those things, we realize, whoa, it never ends. No matter what you make, we have, an, we have those opportunities and our priorities have the opportunity to be twisted and go awry and be askew. And we have the opportunity and the place where we can see and miss out on what's most important, the neglect the most important things in our lives. So a couple of things is the message to us is to consider, to think about our ways. Consider how we live. This was the challenge to go, okay, think about what you're living. Think about what satisfies you. You see, the problem for them is they were blind to their very condition. And so are we. And we need God to step in with his word to say, do you see what you're living for? Do you see how dissatisfied you are? What are your priorities? And I'm convinced that probably like they would walk by the temple day in and day out and it had become a non-issue to them Although it was on the heart of God, they could care less that there are things that we walk by day in and day out that are on the heart of God that I'm not able to see. That because of my preoccupation, my own stuff, I can't see what is on the heart of God. I can't even stop to think, what do you think about this? Because I'm so busy. And so the necessity is for him to break in with his word, for him to break in with his spirit, to, to cause me to stop and to consider, God, what's going on in my life? What am I not seeing that you're seeing? What grieves your heart so much so that you want to get my attention and to, to find that he is able to step in? You see, we don't just change our priorities because I'm convinced we don't always know our priorities. We're so enmeshed in our culture sometimes that we live with the priorities of our culture and we don't even know it. And so we need God to step in and to reveal to us the ways that we're living and neglecting the most important things. And we need to repent of the priorities that are wrong as he reveals them to us. As he breaks on the scene and says, see this, there's something wrong here. We need to respond and say, God, would you, would you enable me to live and to reconstruct my life around you and the things that you value? To shift my heart and to shift my, shift my perspective and to stir my spirit so I can really respond to you. The Sermon on the Mount, the passage we read earlier, when Jesus concludes the running after other things, he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that our focus, our preoccupation is to be that and asking God, what does this mean for us to build your kingdom, to seek your kingdom, to seek your righteousness in our lives and not to seek these other things and to trust that he will provide those things. Secondly, there's a centrality of God's presence. And I mentioned that in the offertory, that he is to be not just priority, but to be central and to be the ordering principle of all of our lives and to place him at the center. And so that he can speak to not just our tithe, but to all of our finances, not just to our quiet times as it relates to our time, but all of our time. 
and so that he would speak and be central in every aspect of our lives. That we would find as we consider our lives and ask the question, am I finding satisfaction in him? Is it about his presence in my life day in and day out? Or how often rather am I finding myself being drawn away by these other things and finding satisfaction in them? The material blessings for them as it does in us become an ultimate end rather than the means and understanding it's a gift of God and that it is really to represent God's presence, that he's the giver. And so we ask the question, am I running after these things? And, and again, we repent of that, the ways that we're trying to find satisfaction when God's given to us and ask God to, through our recollection, through our understanding in our lives, to, to be aware of that and to, to seek our satisfaction in him alone and to learn what that even means. And certainly Sunday mornings are part of, of that. Also, do we live lives of faith? Is faith a necessary aspect of our lives day in and day out? Do we ever find ourselves in those positions where faith is not necessary to live? In fact, trying to build our lives in such a way that we don't have to trust God. And that was perhaps the biggest issue of all as we go for them and look at my own life as well. I want to construct my life in such a way that I don't have to trust. And if I have found a place if I have built, if I found myself worshiping God that requires nothing of me, that requires, does not require faith, then I probably have exchanged the right God, the true God, for a God of my own manufacturing, of my own making. And so faith is a necessary requirement in our lives. And, and asking, you see, if you go back to the scenario in Haggai, right? Faith was necessary to look at that, that uh, the foundation that was broken down and to look at their situation and say, we need to do something about that, and God will do something. He will enable us to do it. Faith was necessary as a lens to even begin to think about embarking on such a task that God would call them to do. Faith is, at the same time, is necessary for us as we see and we look. And living by faith as a Christian is, is a part of the vitality and prevents us from apathy and complacency. To put ourselves in situation and ask God, what do you want us to do? How do you want us to trust you? This day, this week, this month, living by faith is a part of the adventure of the Christian life. It's about a journey. You can ask Chad Donahoe, the journey of the, of the OC, the Orient Center that he's going to be talking about here in a couple weeks. Three or four years now, I've got a chance. I run with Chad on a weekly basis, and probably every run we've had, every jog over the last three or four years has entailed this journey of, of God establishing a place there that he would use. And the faith involved to go, okay, Lord, what are you doing? The ups and downs of it, and it's coming to fruition to see something built that God would use. Faith is necessary. A couple weeks ago, I got a text in staff meeting. I know I shouldn't be checking my phone in staff meeting, but I did. And we do, except for Dave. Anyway, uh, and it was a text from a guy named Marcus Brooks, who's with the Jesus Film Project. And Marcus uh, is a good friend, longtime friend. And it was a text that simply went, hey, Rick, do you want to go on a Jesus film trip with me this, uh, this fall to the South Pacific? And I looked at the text and I went, <laughs> I just laughed. I said, you're, I mean, I thought to myself, right, you're crazy. That would really disrupt things. That would really be a mess if I would try to do that. And, and to be honest with you, I dismissed it completely. I thought that's crazy. And thinking back, I thought back really within a day or two. I went, wait a second. Why did I dismiss that? Why didn't I just think about it for a moment 
It's because I didn't like where that might take me. I didn't like where even the question would take me and the faith that might be required to, to do something like that and how it might cost something or it might take something out of my time or my money or the time I would have. Now, my point there is faith doesn't mean I am going. Faith means you need to ask the question. When something like that pops up on the radar screen of your life, you go, wait a second, I need to at least ask the question. God, is this something you want me to do? And only faith can enable you to ask the crazy question. To ask the question that you shouldn't ask, but you do. Should I do this? So faith is a necessary ingredient in our lives. And God says, consider your ways. Are you living priorities? Are you repenting of your bad ones? Are you trusting in me? Are you building your life centrally around me? And are you living by faith and seeking to live by faith? We consider our ways and finally... I know this is really my last point. Go. Go. The challenge, the final command is as you consider, go. Go up and build. Go get wood. Go. Leave. Sacrifice. Pay. Spend time. Spend money. Spend sweat to go and to build. It would take something of them to go. And as they considered their ways, they went. As they considered where they were and where God was and what he had called them to, by faith they went and they acted upon that call of God in their lives. They had a central task that was given to them and by God's grace in their lives, that faith that came from him, and we'll talk about that next week, they went. We don't have, in an exact sense, that kind of central task, but Jesus has given us a central task and it has the same command, go. You can go to the very end of Matthew and you find his words to all those who would read them. His followers go and make disciples of all nations. There's a command as you consider who he is and who we are and what he's done, what he's accomplished. Because his call there is not go build a physical temple, it's to go build his temple. Go build his church. Go be a part of with him in building his kingdom and in seeing it established. And the beauty with them as it is with us is that as we go, in the going process, in the sacrifice, in the cost, and in the product itself, we get to experience the presence of God. Jesus says, I am with you even to the ends of the earth. God says, I am with you as you go. And as we go, he's with us in the going. He's with us as we go and we find and we learn and we know him in a way we never would have known him before. We learn about his presence, how satisfactory he is, the priorities that should be built around him, the centrality of God in our lives, and the beauty of walking by faith. Let's pray. Father, I confess first and foremost this morning that uh, this isn't exactly how I want to live, and, and yet your word graciously calls us. And I, I pray for each one of us that this truth would land on our lives in ways that, that would meet us right where we are that your priorities for us, we would repent of those ones and, and reveal to us the blindness of, of our, towards our priorities and our culture's impact upon us, that we would truly, by faith, step out and trust you and see you work and operate in our midst as your people, that we would demonstrate who you are. We would know you in this way, and there would be a visible representation of your church on the earth. Father, there are many needs that are here and many needs that we get to be a part of. And people have already sacrificed and spent money and time and energy in investing in and that you're using. We pray that you would use them. We pray 
uh, for Family Promise as it's concluded this week that that ministry and investment would bring glory to you and be a part of building your kingdom. Think of the Pregnancy Care Center as it's established and we get a chance to be a part of that or the missionaries that we as a church support, the many opportunities that we have. Father, we pray at the same time and think of, of good, close friends that we have who are in Colorado Springs and the fires there and the victims of the fire. We think of Doug Nunke and Jerry and the Bridges family and the NAV staff that are displaced, their homes, and the many others as well. And certainly as they each rebuild their lives and look to you to sustain them, that there would be an overflow of your ability to sustain them, to be able to use them in the lives of others, that you'd provide for them and that this great message of your control and your care and your sovereignty would be at work in them. So, Father, would you strengthen them? Father, this week as we think about Fourth of July and, and the freedom we have, would you enable us to, one, enjoy the, the political and um, economic freedoms that, that we have, but that we wouldn't just use those for ourselves, but we would use them to, to take your gospel forward, that we would enjoy the spiritual freedom that we have in Christ and live lives of joy and fullness because of him. We entrust our lives to you this week. We ask that you would be building in us and build us into that temple that will bring great glory to you and display your presence to a world who is watching. In Jesus' name.